Well, we're going to be taking a look at the next passage in Luke uh, chapter 18, if you want to get your Bibles ready. Uh, you may have heard about the uh, kerfuffle over the, uh, the ad uh, at the Super Bowl that had to do uh, with uh, this organization uh, called He Gets Us. Have you, have you heard about this? Uh, if you were watching the Super Bowl carefully and watching the ads carefully, you probably saw uh, this ad. I, I've been somewhat ambivalent about these ads since they've come out. They, they always uh, seem to lack, uh, and I'm, I always want to, you know, fill in and provide the, what is lacking. Uh, but the, in the recent ad, uh, foot washings were, you know, kind of the scenario, and there was a various, scene, uh, various scenes of foot washings. Uh, indicating Christian humility, uh, all well and good. Uh, but objections were raised pretty quickly uh, because of the political vibe of the scenes, uh, that the, uh, they all seemed to favor the objects of left-wing politics. And so there was a, you know, a protest, you know, what's going on here? And, and, and always with these ads, there has been the question of, uh, Jesus does much more than get us. Um, it's not an entirely uh, passive position uh, that he comes to us with. And so there was actually a response ad that came out. Have you seen this? You seen the response that came out? So somebody did a very good job uh, creating another ad. And, uh, and, and that ad said Jesus not only gets us, uh, but he saves us. He changes us. And, uh, and, he, and it does a really good job of doing it. I preferred that ad much more. Uh, than the original. Uh, But the first ad highlights this one reality and this foible that all of us share, and that is to uh, make of Jesus something that is consistent with our preconceptions. In fact, you know, my notion as I saw the thing was there's really an attempt to get Jesus to bow the knee uh, to our political preconceptions and our social and cultural preconceptions. Now, I want to be very clear that this is a foible to which all of us are inclined. Uh, One of the things I had to read when I was in seminary was a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. You may have heard of him. Uh, But basically what he did was he went back through the previous hundred years of Protestant theology and showed how Jesus was recreated in each era according to the preconceptions of the folks who were writing about him. And so we've all got this capacity to do it. You know, Schweitzer, I think, in the end threw his hands up and said, it's impossible to know who Jesus really was because we're so afflicted by our preconceptions. Now, you know, we would say differently uh, because we have a high view of the Bible. And I think, uh, you know, I would say, and all of you would say, and I was taught in seminary, uh, we're very grateful for the Bible. We're very grateful for its plenary inspiration. Uh, every jot and every tittle comes from the Lord. Um, and, uh, and we're grateful for the gift of the Spirit, as was taught in the Sunday school class this morning, that accompanies our reading of and study of and preaching of uh, the Bible. Uh, But I do want to say we need to keep going back. We need to search the scriptures again and again. And we need to ask God to search our hearts again and again as we go back to them. Because we don't ever want to get in the place, 
you know, where we assert with a certain amount of overconfidence, and I would even say smugness, that we've got this nailed down. You know, we always approach the Word saying, Lord, uh, show me. Show me new things in the Word. Show me things about my own heart that have yet to been, be revealed. Now, you can imagine I'm leading up to a passage that I think is going to be pretty tough on us uh, to take at face value. I know that I myself, emblematic of all of us here, uh, want quickly to compromise, quickly to say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says uh, when I read this passage. But there is such richness and such depth, and really right at the very center of it is Jesus as the lover of our souls, and we don't want to miss that. Um, So let me pray one more time before we uh, read the passage. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we need humbly to submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty and ask you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word that will now be sown among us would take deep root such deep root uh, that the burning heat of persecution wouldn't cause it to wither, that the thorny cares of this life wouldn't choke it, but that a seed sown in good ground, it would bring forth 30, 60, 100-fold uh, the way that Jesus taught. So, Father in heaven, come be with us. Have, have, have mercy on us. Be merciful to us as we handle your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Okay, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Uh, Hear the word of God. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of God. Uh, So let's dive into it. Let's just go a little bit at a time through it and see what we can glean. Uh, The first interaction is often overlooked, and I want to pay a little bit of attention to that. Uh, It is possible, maybe even likely, that the ruler was listening uh, when Jesus was welcoming the children And he was saying that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he receives it as one of these children. And uh, and the ruler is kind of coming to him and saying, what about me? What must I do in order to receive the kingdom as a child and then enter it? 
And he calls him good teacher, and that's what we ought to notice here. Now, the important thing to note is that um, there is no rabbinic literature anywhere uh, to be found in which a rabbi is called good. Uh, so this is a unique kind of thing, and, it, and, uh, and the, the ruler is doing something that would be out of keeping uh, in the world in which he lived. So Jesus invites him, says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus invites the ruler uh, to see that he's maybe saying more than he knows. Uh, it's really, again, an unusual interchange. And, and Jesus' comments reflect the common understanding. Uh, they would have understood that only God is good and you don't call rabbis good. Um, and so Jesus is inviting him. And, and this is, I think, an important rubric uh, with which to understand the four Gospels is that all of Jesus' interactions essentially contain an invitation. Uh, even his judgments, even the things that he says that seem harsh, contain within them an invitation uh, to come, be cleansed, to come and be saved, to come and be uh, healed and be given new life. So Jesus isn't saying he's a sinner, uh, but he's inviting the ruler to the reality of who he is. Now, when the ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life, um, you know, that can be put a lot of different ways. He's really asking, I think, uh, what, what do I need to do to stand in the presence of a holy God? And, and Jesus invites him to consider this when he says, no one is good except God alone. Uh, but he's resistant to that. Uh, to inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved are all the same thing. To enter eternal life, to enter the kingdom, to inherit eternal life, to be saved are all the same thing. And, and we need to um, understand that this is a full-orbed complex of, of, of life that, that, again, contains body and soul, uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It contains everything that you are. Um, we have the notion that one can inherit eternal life apart from bending the knee. And that is a lie from hell. That's not true. You cannot inherit eternal life distinct from bending the knee. When you come, you come on bended knee. Uh, we have the notion that faith and repentance are separate realities. They are not separate realities. Uh, th there is no such thing as a real saving faith that is not a repentant faith. And there's no such thing as a real repentance uh, that doesn't contain the element of faith and trust and, and leaning upon the Lord. A, a false repentance can look like that, but a real repentance uh, is going to lean on Christ. There is a notion that initial justification and subsequent sanctification can be separated from each other. And they cannot be separated from each other. They are intrinsic to each other. I had a, a, a wild experience as a young minister. Uh, there was a, a, a family in my church, and, uh, and the matriarch, uh, who was in a different church, had passed away. And, uh, and, and the family came to me and said, uh, her minister's out of town, you need to do the funeral. And I said, okay, I'd, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, tell me something about your mom. And they said she was mean as a snake. And, uh, and she hated our faith and she constantly criticized us, and that's who she was. Now, how are you going to preach that sermon? Uh, so, 
Uh, I avoided any comments on the woman's character, and I simply said, you know, anytime we have a funeral, uh, it is appropriate for us to mark our days. It's appropriate for us to consider our steps. And I read from Psalm 90. And, uh, and whereupon, some of the ladies' country club friends wrote me uh, uh, some hate mail, you know, and, and said that I had, uh, you know, done the wrong thing. And so uh, I called up the minister uh, when he got back into town, and I said, let's have lunch and let's talk about this. I, I don't want to have willfully offended uh, and, and tell me where I went wrong. And he said, well, I always, when I preach a sermon or preach a funeral, uh, assume that the person is a Christian if they're a member of the church. And I said, well, what if there was no fruit of that faith? He said, it doesn't matter to me. And I said, do you think it's possible that someone could be justified and not sanctified? And he said, sure, if that's the way you want to put it. And I said, I just don't think that's true. It's not true from everything that the Bible teaches. That to be justified is to immediately be put on the road to sanctification, immediately. Heidelberg Catechism does this very well. Uh, I think it's question 86. I don't have them all memorized, but I know that one. It's my favorite one. It said, if we are saved by faith alone... Why must we then do good works? And the first answer to the question, I mean, there's actually five little answers in there. But the first one is that the God who gives us Christ also gives us the Holy Spirit. And we do these good works in order to honor God, in order to show our gratitude, in order to be assured of our own faith. And so that by our lives, our neighbors may be one to Christ. So when this guy is asking to inherit the kingdom, when he's asking to inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom, he's, he's asking a big thing. And, and Jesus loves him very well and, uh, and answers him. Now, since he has asked the question in terms of what he should do, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus answers in terms of doing. And you might notice that what he has done is he has recited uh, most of the second table of the law. Now, you know, we talk about the law, the Ten Commandments, in two tables. Uh, one table has four commandments in it. It's how we relate to God. We relate to God by not worshiping another God, by not uh, creating uh, images of God, by not taking the Lord's name in vain, and by keeping the Sabbath holy. And then the second table uh, elicits how we can love one another. And so we, we honor our parents, we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't commit adultery, uh, we don't lie, and we don't covet. Uh, well, five of those six are listed here. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. It's a good thing to consider these things. One of the commentators I read said, when anyone takes seriously the requirements of the law, he's on his way to coming to Christ. So it's good to pay attention to those and to take them seriously, but you, you have to understand the function of the law. Why is the law given? What does the law do? And, I, you know, just to simplify things, I'll say it does two things. You know, and the first thing that it does is that it shows, your, shows you your inadequacy. It shows you how you have failed to keep the law. And in so doing, it drives you to Christ. 
The Apostle Paul calls this in his letter to the Galatians uh, that the law is a tutor, it's a taskmaster. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a superintendent that is leading us to Christ, and that's how it leads you to Christ. And so when you hear these commands, you go, oh man, well, I, you know, I've had those in mind, but if I'm honest, I haven't kept them very well. All of these having to do with duties required uh, by one another, the obligations of community. And when the ruler says, all these I have kept from my youth, you know, on the one hand, you would expect him to say that. It's not shocking. In fact, if I asked you, have you kept the commands this week, you might say, yeah, more or less. You might give yourself a break. We often do give ourselves a break. More or less I've done these. Uh, But it shows how basic obedience to these things counts very little if it's devoid of a heart that's connected to God's heart. And so Jesus ratchets it up a little bit, actually showing the heart of it. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, and actually... um, Mark's version of this, I think it's Mark's version, chapter 10, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, uh, one thing you still lack. And what's the one thing? Uh, that, you know, that little phrase is riveted in my brain and I think about Mary and Martha. Do you remember this? Uh, episode in the Gospel of John uh, where Martha goes to Jesus and says, you know, my sister is shirking her duties, you know, tell her to shape up, come help me uh, with the preparations. And Jesus says, um, she, Mary has chosen the one thing and, and, and it's the preferable thing and it's the thing that will not be taken from her. Uh, what Mary does is has, she has a heart that's so connected to Jesus' own heart that she neglects everything else to sit at his feet and to listen to him. And so Jesus says to this rich ruler, loving him, again, he's loving him, that you lack one thing. You lack this one thing. Now, I heard Sinclair Ferguson preach this one time, and he said that, uh, that Jesus is bringing the 10th commandment in. He's, he's used the, 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 you know, the commandments six through nine, uh, and now he brings in the 10th about coveting. Uh, but I, I've since read other commentators that say, no, really what he's doing is bouncing back to the first commandment. The first commandment is the commandment from which all of the other commandments spring. Uh, Martin Luther's got a wonderful little treatise on the law. Uh, you can get it for free on the internet. Uh, it's wonderful reading if you like Luther. And, uh, and he basically spends many pages just soaking in the first commandment. That before any of the other commandments are broken, the first commandment is broken. It's the one that superintends all of them. You shall have no false gods, no other gods before me. Nothing else can be God. And so Jesus says, one thing you still lack And to the point, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, what in the world is happening here? Now, and, you know, you may know that in, in church history, this has been misunderstood at times uh, uh, to the impoverishment of the church. Everybody went out and sold everything they had, and there was no money left uh, for the church. Um, and that's a misunderstanding. Uh, yet, if that's a misunderstanding, what's a good understanding? Uh, this passage is consistent with other key places in the Gospel of Luke, one of which I read before the, uh, the offering was taken up. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, where your treasure, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Also, chapter 14, verse 33, which I have underlined as one of the most important verses in my view, in my understanding of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I read a commentator somewhere, I don't even know who it was, but he, in fact, I can probably think about who it is now, but he, uh, he paraphrased this and said, if you don't kiss goodbye everything that you have, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Now, it's, it's radical what Jesus says there in chapter 14. You cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say uh, you can, you'll only be a second-class disciple. It doesn't say you, you won't understand the full measure of what discipleship is until you renounce all that you have. He says, unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. So again, what's going on? And, and this is where you've got to scratch your head. You've got to ask uh, God to show you. I, I think it would be a good thing as a discipline, you know, for the next week and maybe for the next year uh, to pray and say, Father, show me what this means. Uh, show me in my experience, show me in my uh, other correlative reading uh, what this means. Uh, it has never been the case that every Christian should possess nothing. It's never been the case that that's true. But it is the case that every Christian, for every Christian, possessions are held lightly. Is it possible to have these things but hold them lightly? Now, that's where you have to ask some hard questions of yourself. And you might have to ask yourself the question, what, what is it that I cherish so much that if God asked me to get rid of it, I would have to rethink whether or not I want to be a Christian? And that gets pretty close to the nub. And it's not just wealth and possessions, although those are, those are emblematic. Wealth is a likely object for that kind of disposition. But there are other things that can rise up that, that way as well. Uh, maybe your reputation looms that large for you. What would loss of reputation look like for you? Uh, so is respect. Maybe even all the way up to prestige. How important to you is the respect of those who are important to you. And what if you were to lose that respect? What if God said, you can't have it? So are certain relationships and the hope of such. I have met 
single people in my life that have said, if God is not going to provide me with a partner, I'm going to reconsider whether or not I want to be a Christian. I know people particularly in that uh, situation when I was during my time in, in Cambridge. Uh, people who were willing to pursue immorality and even gross immorality in order to satisfy the demand in their souls for a relationship. It's hard to dig into this stuff. It's hard to ask these questions. When I was in Cambridge, it was very likely that the thing that was the most important thing that you could not do without was an academic degree. And there was a sense of if I do not accomplish this academic degree, if I do not earn it, then my life will be meaningless. And I might even call into question whether or not God loves me and call into question whether or not I'm going to remain faithful. Not only the degree, but the job that would necessarily follow from that. Now, you know, what would it be in Peachtree City? What would loom that large? You know, what would be the thing that you would say, I've got to have this. And if I can't have it, then I'm going to call everything into question. So it says that the man goes away very sad. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Uh, He won't give up his wealth, at least not immediately. Uh, But Jesus is not backing down from his command either. I think there's kind of a sadness all around. But the ruler's whole understanding of what it means to be religious, his whole understanding of what it means uh, to relate to God, uh, is, is, is turned upside down. And, and in a sense, it's hard not to sympathize with the guy. You know, what would happen if, you're, if all of your understanding of the way life was to be lived before the Lord was flipped on its ear? I think it's interesting that he doesn't become angry. He doesn't become frustrated, which is the polite way of saying angry. Uh, but rather he becomes very sad. And I take that as a hopeful sign. Uh, I have hopes that the rich ruler did something a little bit better. You know, rich people don't don't come across very well in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, But we'll see uh, next month in chapter 19, uh, this one rich guy who is one of the more delightful characters uh, in the Gospel of Luke and watch him repent. And, uh, you know, maybe that has something to do with this guy. But again, Jesus has said in other places, and this is something that has to be true in Peachtree City. It's something that's true in the United States of America. It's something that's true in the Western world. uh, That wealth is a unique impediment to entering the kingdom. Uh, It is almost impossible to resist the allure. And Jesus, when he told the parable of the sower, said that it's one of the things, it is the thing that can choke out the gospel. Uh, The allure of wealth and the deceptiveness of wealth. And, and the things that it can buy. And, 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 and we Americans in the modern world are outliers in the history of the world. I've just picked up this dense book out of uh, chapter and verse, and I'm absolutely delighting in it because it's so well written. Uh, but it makes the point that uh, all of us uh, Westerners now are weird. In fact, he even takes it a little bit further. He says, we are weirder. And, uh, and he said, we are marked by being Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, 
ex-Christian and romantic. And I'm trying to unpack these things. But one of the things that is true is that the wealth that has flown into the coffers uh, of those of us in the Western world is absolutely unimaginable uh, historically and unimaginable in other parts of the world. You know, sometimes we trot out Alexis de Tocqueville. I don't know if you've heard of this guy's name. He was a French traveler and he was a travel writer and he came to the United States and he marveled at the thoroughgoing religious disposition of people in the United States. And a lot of times Christians, uh, they quote him, you know, to their own benefit to say, oh yeah, that was, that's one of the great things about being an American. And de Tocqueville was really impressed. Uh, but he also went on to say it is, it, 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 it's curious that it, right alongside of this unquestioning uh, Christianity that suffuses the entire culture so much that no one questions it, he's writing back in the 17, 1800s, uh, there would also be paired with it a relentless pursuit of material prosperity a relentless pursuit of the acquisition of wealth and with the pursuit of happiness. You know, it is interesting that, you know, we love to go back to our Declaration of Independence and note the fact that God has mentioned uh, that God has uh, created all men equal and given them inalienable rights. And, you know, and, and we love that part of our foundation. And in fact, it's even more serious than that. I found out in this book that uh, Thomas Jefferson originally wrote, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And, and the unbeliever Benjamin Franklin said, you know, let's, let's change that and say we hold these truths to be self-evident. And, the, and those un, inalienable rights are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Well, that is absolutely contrary to everything that Jesus teaches. So while we do have this reference to uh, the Lord in our declaration, uh, we also have this pagan notion of the pursuit of happiness, a secular notion really is what it is. Uh, there's a fantastic essay written by uh, the Jewish philosopher, psychologist actually, Viktor Frankl. He's an amazing story. He uh, submitted himself uh, to the death camps uh, where he counseled uh, his fellow Jews uh, felt like he had to do that. He survived them, obviously, and wrote later. But he has an essay about the pursuit of happiness and how it is illusory and it is damaging. That happiness cannot be pursued. That happiness is a byproduct of pursuing something a lot more worthy, uh, a lot more solid than that. So again, wealth is this unique impediment to the kingdom of heaven. We can almost cry out with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver us? But here Jesus loves this man by not backing down. I think there's a sadness, a pathos in his comment, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Peter jumps up, gotta love Peter, uh, always saying the He's kind of always saying what's in all of our hearts. We don't have the guts to say it, but Peter says it and says, hey, you know, look at what we've done. You know, we've sacrificed everything in order to be with you. And Jesus comes back with this amazing promise 
Truly I say to you, no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now there is this reference to in this time, but again, I mean, let's be wise. Uh, let's note our own experience. Let's note Christian history. Let's note the example of Jesus himself. The benefit to be accrued in this time is not material. And prosperity teaching is diabolical. That's not what's being promised. But what he's really asking us to look at is in the age to come, uh, eternal life. Uh, that's the promise. And that really is the difference uh, between a life that is oriented around the gospel and a life that has been secularized is the secular life is oriented around life here now and what can be accrued before we die. And yet Jesus is inviting all of us to root ourselves in what happens after we die. I remember being on a coach. It's what they call it in England, a big bus. And there were a bunch of us on there. We were part of a missions team but we were acting like tourists one day and we rented a coach and this guy was driving us around and Jack Miller uh, was with us and he took up his position right behind the driver and badgered him relentlessly throughout the trip in the name of evangelism. Uh, that's another story for another day. Uh, it's, it has a happy ending but um, I remember him sitting down and he just asked the guy what, you know what's life like for you? What are you looking forward to? And the guy said I, I can't wait uh, for my retirement, I'm moving uh, to the coast of Spain. And, and Jack, you know, the initial foray is, what are you planning after your retirement? What's next for you after that? And Jesus is fairly inviting us here to ask the same question. Uh, so, again, what we find here is what we find everywhere in the word, uh, that God is more demanding than you care to think uh, and at the same time, he's much more generous than you dare to hope. More demanding than you think and more generous uh, than you dare hope. What does it take to inherit eternal life? Well, one has to enter the kingdom. How does one enter the kingdom? By receiving it as a child. Like a tenacious widow who won't give up. Like a sinner who knows that he needs grace like a helpless child who trusts, and like one who lets go of that which is most dear to him uh, because he knows that there are things that are more important. Now, once again, Jesus is the lover of your soul, and sometimes he will put you in a very tough place, and you will have to choose. And he will not back off of that tough place. He will not back away from his demand. Uh, to do so would be to cheapen it. Uh, but here it, it is in front of you. Come. Uh, come and relinquish. Renounce. Kiss goodbye. Everything that you have. And then inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, we love the reality of the scriptures.
in which you confound us, in which you refuse to be domesticated, in which you say very, very hard things, but you do them uh, with an eternal, uh, perfect, expansive, thorough uh, love for your people. And you even love the whole world uh, in ways that we can't understand. Uh, but we want to take these things to heart uh, as we anticipate the missions conference, as we anticipate a new pastor, as we anticipate the next 10, 20, 30 years of what you're going to do at Carriage Lane if you don't come back before that. And so we pray that we would take these things to heart. Pray that each of us, each of us would examine ourselves and uh, think carefully about the life to which you're calling us, a life that is fit for eternity. Amen.